to Your Property Podcast and today we have John Ireland with us today talking about wills and trusts and powers of attorney. Now it's it's a type of topic that most people think oh I'll get round to thinking about that tomorrow let alone doing anything about it tomorrow. Um, it's something like a lot of people do put off so uh, we've decided to invite John to talk to us today so that at least we can be thinking about it today and understand what it is we could be doing and uh, and what help available that is out there to uh, to put these things into place and make the process as easy as possible so hi john hi there michelle it's great to uh, to have you here and um i've seen you a few times at various meetings speaking and yeah. uh, i have to admit when i heard the topic i was thinking oh gosh you know wills and things that's you know <laughs> just what i said i think oh, <laughs> you're not alone uh, yeah and um but I've really, I've heard, I've heard your talk, it must be at least three or four times now. And every time I get something different from it and I think, right, okay, I need to kind of put that in place or I didn't know that, that so, and obviously things change all the time as well. So first of all, just tell us a bit about your background and uh, who you are. And sure, you no problem. Okay. Well, I, I mean, I've had a, a variety of careers, like a lot of people, I've, I've done all sorts of things from being a uh, a croupier, believe it or not, working in the Bahamas. I owned a bar in Italy. Yeah, done a few things. And then I got into financial services. And uh, that was oh, way back, way, way back. Financial advisors are legally obliged to ask their clients, have you got a will? And of course, I was asking people and uh, the statistics were the same then as they are now. Uh, the majority of people just don't have a will. And I think probably for the reasons that you've said, you know, a lot of people think it's a grim subject. And yes, okay, fine, it's not the happiest of things to talk about, but it really is an important thing to do. So uh, around about 1996, I started taking will instructions for uh, my clients who didn't have a will, so that we could at least provide them with something rather than, you know, not having anything at all. Um, I guess flash forward to 2012 and I decided to give up being a financial advisor. It was uh, not something I was enjoying anymore to concentrate really on um, what we call now estate planning. Um, so now we can offer the, the whole gamut, the whole load of services that you just mentioned to our clients to help them protect their assets. Right. Okay. And you know, out of everything we're going to talk about, it seems like the very basic step one is the will. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think people put off doing anything about it? Um, I mean, I've had various things. People were saying I'm too young. Um, I don't think I need one right now because um, I've not got much in the way of assets. Uh, people will say, oh, no, I don't want to do that. Um, it, it will bring bad luck. Some people are a bit superstitious about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're the main reasons I get, you know, sort of uh, given to me when people say, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do it another time. I'll do it. I do it next year. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't yeah. always work. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah. Do you, you know um, uh, when people say I don't really need a will because I haven't I haven't got much to pass on? Is that is that true? Do you do you have conversations with people where you say actually no, you don't need a will? Um, I have had conversations uh, like that with people. Generally, they've been very young. I would have probably met them at a property event somewhere. And maybe they're just starting out, um, possibly living with mum and dad, no children, no other dependents and um, no other assets. 
But again, if you, it doesn't matter if you've not got a lot to pass on. If you've got something to pass on, or possibly if you've got maybe young children, I mean, there are some reasons there that you should consider a will. I mean, very few people know this, but if you don't name guardians in your will, um, especially if you've got very young children, well, or children under the age of 18, somebody dies, those children could go into care, which is obviously not what people would intend, but the court has no way really of finding out what you wanted to have happen to those children. So, yeah, it's just a bit easier to, to, to make a will and, and make things um, tidy. It, it would cost a lot more money to uh, deal with the situation after someone's died than it actually costs to make a will, to be honest. Okay, well, why you just brought that up, you know, just to sort of off the bat here, let's just lay out uh, roughly what is somebody talking about when they, you know, I'm sure it varies depending on what kind of estate people have, but uh, I don't know, let's, let's say people have got one to five properties and uh, they've got the family set up with children. So of what kind of range are we talking about in the cost of putting a will in place and how long would that take? Sure. I mean, a basic will um, doesn't take too long at all. Um, but I'm kind of hesitant to. I can give you. I can tell you what our fees are without any problem at all. I think the challenge is here is that uh, our planning is bespoke. So right. what I would like to do would be to speak to uh, prospective clients to find out more details about their own circumstances, what assets they have, etc., what properties they have, how those properties are owned is also mm -hmm. an important um, part of the conversation. Um, and also what they want to do. I think the other thing that I take into consideration and hear about and discuss um, with clients is, is uh, I suppose, in the modern term would be blended families. It's not unusual mm. for people to come into a relationship uh, and have children with uh, either a previous spouse or another partner, etc. Uh, and it may be that they want to set up um, separate arrangements for those children, um, whether they're under the age of 18 or, or, or adults, you know. So really it's just a case of looking at someone's own situation uh, to find out more about what they've got, what they want to achieve, and then I would give them advice on the best way of achieving it. We don't charge a fee for that service. We um, look at their, you know, their, their situation, give them that advice, and then with a bit of luck they become clients. If they don't, then obviously that's my business risk but I would much much rather someone has the uh, the advice that we can give them rather than what a lot of people do with, as solicitors anyway would be just taking their instructions um, mm -hmm. you know taking their instructions is, is not particularly helpful because someone going to a solicitor might just give them their instructions without any help or without any guidance we give the guidance uh, and, and we tell the clients what the fees will be uh, before we uh, before they commit. Okay, um, I see. So that sounds like it sounds yeah like a really good way of doing it because um, I guess solicitors they won't necessarily know what could be best for the client. So you know, if in that case, what we're going to talk about next is um, trusts. So. Yeah. Um, you know, this is something that you specialise in and something I only came across from a PIN meeting, actually. Um, it's not something that is sort of general knowledge, especially for people starting out. So, yeah. um, and then even if people have heard of it, 
it's sort of one another another one of those things thinking okay look sounds a bit complicated and not really sure how that works and um yeah so can you just explain what is a trust and why should people have one sure uh there's a great deal of um myth and mystique about trusts and people think they're incredibly complex they think they're unwieldy they feel that they they are expensive etc but in general the type of trusts that we talk to our clients about uh in the main are what we call discretionary trusts now these trusts have been around literally for hundreds of years um it's rumoured, I don't know how true it is, but it's rumoured that Richard the first, I think, was the first person to start using trusts for oh. knights who actually went off to the Crusades. Yeah. yeah. Um, so a trust is really nothing more uh, complex than a, than a form of words that are in the document. That trust is to help protect the assets for the beneficiaries. I guess another way of describing it would be someone can leave their assets into, you know, the old fashioned type uh, pirates um, chest. I like to think of one of those being on a table and, and that's kind of someone's trust. What they can do then is, is on death, those assets that they have that they want to give to beneficiaries go into the trust. Um, the trustee is the person who holds the key. And therefore, they must look after the assets of the trust. For the beneficiaries so they then at the appropriate time give the uh, the assets within the trust they give the access to the beneficiaries uh, as i say there's nothing really that much more complicated than that i think one of the points to think about uh, slightly complicated is that you shouldn't leave more than three hundred and twenty-five thousand pounds into one of these discretionary trusts the main reason being that uh, if you leave more than £325,000, every 10 years, there's another form of inheritance tax that's levied on it, but that's at 6%. I kind of explained in my talks that if I didn't do my job right uh, and we left £1,325,000 into one of these trusts, then uh, the 325 is okay, but the million pound um is going to be taxed at 6%. So in effect that's £60,000 every 10 years that doesn't need to be paid. The other way of um of getting rid of the thousand pound that sorry the, the the million pounds would be to leave that into another type of trust. That's called an interest in possession trust. That type of trust can have any amount into it whether it's a million or 10 million but they then don't pay the 6% charge every 10 years. Right. That's the basis of trust really. They're not complicated. Okay, so um, my understanding of a trust is someone described it as like wrapping cling film around your properties as in nobody can really touch it. It's um, yeah. it's sort of protecting it from various authorities. Um, well, yeah, or, or, you know, it's uh, we, we um, like to use trusts to protect client assets. So that um, as an example, if two people own a property, most people in the UK will own the property as joint tenants. Um, we would always suggest that someone owns it as tenants in common. Now, what I've done with my own planning is that I own my property with my wife as tenants in common. In effect, she owns half, I own half. So when I die, I've left my half into a trust. Now that means she's a trustee, she's a beneficiary. If she wants to sell the property, she can but she cannot be forced to sell that property um, by, say, the local authority if she needs long-term care. 
Um, if she goes into a new relationship that doesn't work out, then, mm. uh, you know, there's, there's no danger of her soon-to-be ex-husband getting her to sell it or forcing mm. her to sell it because she mm. can't be forced. That's good. Effectively, that property is owned by her trust and not her personally. Mm. The other benefit of that is that um, from a generational point of view, when we both pass on, the sub-beneficiaries of those trusts, in other words, the next generation, are our two children. So they would benefit from what we want to gift to them. Um, and dare I say it, it's not going to be for their spouses, um, but it also won't be for their creditors. If they've made a bad decision in life, maybe running their own businesses, um, and all of a sudden we shuffle off this mortal coil and gift them something, um, no one's going to be able to get their hands on it either. And that's the beauty of having it in a trust. And does that affect um, inheritance tax? Um, it does affect inheritance tax for the second generation. I mean, the first generation is going to have inheritance tax levied on it over and above the nil rate band, of course, anything you own above the nil rate band. Notwithstanding, there is obviously the residential nil rate band, which I can explain if you want. But ultimately, if I gift um, or if we gift our uh, estate to our children, it doesn't then form part of their estate only for inheritance tax uh, to be payable when they die. Uh, and what I've found is that people that don't do planning work very, very hard to build up a lot of assets, leave that to the kids. The kids either get divorced or there's creditors or there's this and that. The other predator is inheritance tax. So you might, you might leave stuff to your kids with the best of intentions. And then unfortunately, when they die, there's inheritance tax on that generation. And then the next generation Within two, three, four generations, everything you've worked hard for is gone in tax. What do you think is like a common misconception about it? About trusts? Yeah. I think people think that there's um, that, they're, that they're, they are very, very complex. They are not something you can change and they're expensive. They're not expensive. I mean, for the sort of trust we're talking about, it's, sub, well, it's about 700 quid. Right. There's no ongoing fee. Nothing goes into the trust until someone dies. And that's why they're discretionary. So while you're alive, you can choose who are your beneficiaries. You can choose what goes into the trust and you can choose who the trustees are. If you okay. fall out with your trustees that you have appointed, you can appoint new ones. Okay. Um, when you die, it's only then that your assets will go into the trust for the beneficiary. Does it cost every time you need to change? Uh, what the the if you, trust if you want, yeah if you wanted to yeah, change there would probably be a, yeah we would probably say it's a small admin fee for, okay. for, for having to change that because otherwise you know um we we, we can't sure. work for yeah, nothing can't but it's cool. not a huge amount right. okay like an admin amount. fee and um i was speaking to somebody let's say um people sort of an, of an older generation who who like to see the physical co copy um, yeah. I know it sounds silly, but are these kept in the cloud? Like, how does some, you know, when you when you pass on, how does someone notify them? How does someone notify what? Say the trustee. So how does some? How do how do the authorities notify the, this information? I'm just I had a conversation with somebody, and they said, well, you know, who gets notified when? Sure. Okay. Well, I mean, there's two ways of doing it. One one very popular way is to let your uh, let your executors know that there's a trustee uh, and there's a trust. Most of the time, people um, use the same 
the same person for various roles. So, you know, in, in what we do, there's going to be uh, very probably, there's going to be an executor anyway for the will. There's going to be a trustee for the trust. Uh, if they use powers of attorney, it may be the same person. And then um, it, there may, of course, be a necessity for guardians. So someone somewhere along the lines, uh, along that route, really, uh, will know that someone's unfortunately died. Um, what we tend to do is, uh, if clients want us to do it, we can write to their executors, their um, their trustees, their attorneys, etc., and we can explain uh, their roles to them um, so that, that there's no ambiguity. And then if anything happens, we are for, we're the first port of call. They can give us a call and say, look, unfortunately, so-and-so is now passed on what do we do and okay. you know we, we will we'll hold their hands till um they either uh, are happy enough to go along and finish the job themselves as say an executor um or you know we can do the job for them so you mentioned there about um lasting power of attorney mm-hmm. now it was only again at a pin meeting that i knew that well a what one was because it's not something i've ever really looked into before but also that there's two different types which is yeah. really important so yeah up until 2007 there was only uh, a thing called an enduring power of attorney so just one really but as of 2007 the court of protection deemed that it was necessary to have two powers of attorney Uh, one is for health and welfare the other one is for property and financial affairs now we suggest to clients that they really should consider uh, putting these in place the major reasons behind that are that um, as of a legislation change in 2015, if an individual loses capacity to act for themselves, then um, the doctor, their GP, has to report that to the Court of Protection. Um, if that's the case, then the Court of Protection uh, informs social services who will look at the Office of Public Guardian's records. The Office of Public Guardian is where you register the powers of attorney. Now, power of attorney is the legal authority that you give to someone to look after your affairs if you lack the capacity to do so. So if they look at the the Office of Public Guardian and find that that individual lacking capacity does not have a power of attorney or the powers of attorney in place, property and financial health and welfare, social services become their attorneys. The uncomfortable thing then is that they start freezing bank accounts. Now, obviously, for uh, people involved in property, that could be a major challenge because, believe it or not, the the revenue that they get from, say, renting out their HMOs and whatever else, uh, that money actually goes back to the tenants until such time as the, that person's affairs are sorted out. Wow. As you can probably imagine, that causes a <laughs> lot of aggravation for the tenants and the tenants will start thinking, oh my goodness, am I going to be evicted? Um, I guess the other challenge there is if you are dependent on that income to pay the mortgage on that property, mm. I'll be tired you because there could be some major challenges. If um, an extreme case happens where someone uh, in long-term care needs um, care that can't be given to them, say, at home, then, of course, they may need to uh, go into uh, a care uh, situation. 
If there's no lasting power of attorney, what happens is that the powers that be use some software to put that person's details on. And then those, those details go out to all of the care providers who are registered on that system. And uh, that, that, that's nationwide. They then bid for the care contract. And it's not unheard of for someone needing care to unfortunately have to go to um, into care in, in an area that's not maybe convenient for their um, their relatives, their nearest and dearest to visit them, etc. So obviously it can cause a great deal of stress to all parties concerned. I mean, I'm not having to go at social services. It's just that we don't have the money mm-hmm. to to do that. And that's why the assets are frozen for individuals um, needing care. Um, because they're deemed vulnerable, no one's looking after them, but ultimately the state needs the money to pay for that person's care. That's why after 2007, Court of Protection now has the authority to sell properties to pay for someone's care. Very, very important documents. People talk a lot about setting up a limited company um, when they first purchase, obviously with the tax changes. Yeah. Is there any implications with limited companies? How does that work? Does a limited company um, go into the trust? Not really, no. If, we, if we're talking about companies that have uh, rental income paid to them, um, and a lot of people obviously are setting those companies up uh, because of Section 24, then the, the, the challenge is, is that there, there's, a, there's a lovely tax relief called business property relief. And that applies to uh, around about 98% of businesses out there. However, May I step back one? That gives um, the beneficiary of those uh, shares um, quite a nice little tax relief. So there's no inheritance tax levied on someone's shares if that business qualifies for business property relief. Now, in my talks, I give uh, an example of uh, someone who owns, say, two million pounds worth of shares. In a, uh, in a company that qualifies for business property relief. Um, and uh, they leave those shares uh, to the individual, uh, to their spouse when they die. If the spouse doesn't want, well, and if the spouse dies themselves, uh, on the second death, there's no inheritance tax on those shares. If, on the other hand, what happens a lot of the time is that if that individual sells the shares, then of course, whatever they get for that is in their own personal bank account. Then when they die, then there's inheritance tax. But what we could do, and what we do frequently, is to set up a uh, what we call a business trust. They leave the shares into the business trust for their beneficiaries. Um, and then the beneficiary, if they want to sell the shares in that business, they sell them from that trust. That means whatever they receive, is in the business trust, but it's not in their personal estate. That means that they can draw down from that from that trust uh, money, and uh, they've got they've got access to the funds. In other words, but it doesn't form part of the estate then for inheritance tax. The sad fact is that the two percent of businesses that don't yet qualify for business property relief are investment companies. <laughs> And companies that have a rental income. Wow, okay. Now, if you've got a swathe of HMOs or service accommodation or something like that, 
those businesses unfortunately will not qualify for the the inheritance tax relief through business property relief um, so we wouldn't put them in a trust but if someone's got a business that's doing flips uh, it's doing new bills it's doing commercial to residential conversions etc those businesses will qualify as they are uh, in, in the eyes of hmrc carrying on a trade so if that's the case then they will qualify for business property relief and then we would put those shares in a trust right okay i see uh that makes sense okay um what about the you know the difference between executors uh trustees guardians is you know there's a few names here what do they do yeah what, sure. yeah, what are their roles yeah okay well um the executor's job is to um is when someone dies and i'm actually as an executor right now actually uh, for my wife's aunt um and what we have to do is we set up a, a a bank account for that person any money that's owed to the estate gets paid into that any money that's owed from the estate uh, gets paid out as well you have to report everything to HMRC, uh, pay the inheritance tax, and then it's the executor's job to make sure that the beneficiaries get what's what's um, owing to them effectively. Trustee's job really is to look after the uh, the assets of the trust for the beneficiaries until such time as the beneficiaries um, can have those assets, and that's particularly important, obviously, if you've got underage children the a the guardian looks after the welfare of the children if uh, if the parents are no longer uh, around um, and they their role ceases at the age of 18 uh, and the attorney's job is to really look after someone's uh, interests <clears throat> if they lack capacity to look after uh, themselves so that's for health and welfare so they can make the decisions on on health care etc and for property and financial so um, they can deal with mortgage companies uh, with tenants with the banks etc etc okay it sounds like i think we've we've kind of rolled through that but i think we've covered quite a lot and um for people who don't really have never really looked at it before i think that was probably quite a few eye-opening uh points you've made there i hope so is there anything that you we haven't covered that you think is important that you want to um finish on i can't think that there's anything that we haven't covered obviously um i go through a perhaps a um, slightly lengthier explanation or certainly a thorough explanation uh, once we've spoken to a prospective client uh, about what we are recommending to them so that they get a full uh, and comprehensive understanding of of the recommendations before they decide to go ahead, so that everyone you know is is really clear about what uh, we can do for them in order to protect their assets. But other than that, I don't think there's anything else that uh, we need to cover uh, okay. for now. Is there anything that's um, what's the most common scenario that you deal with that? Uh, people you know they come to you to to deal with this but it's something they've uh, maybe they should have done in the past or they need to do but something that people at home they might not have thought about but really this is a really common thing for you sure um i think again the high percentage of the people we speak to don't have a will right. don't know where to start um don't know how to go about things 
Um, and then I'll often meet them when I do a talk at a property event. And, um, you know, with the best of intentions, they've thought about it possibly. But because there's maybe a lack of guidance um, or whatever else, they've never got around to it. Uh, I guess the second most popular type of person that I speak to uh, would maybe have a rudimentary will in place that, uh, that they may have done themselves or they may have just instructed a solicitor to do. Um, and again, without any guidance or perhaps even knowledge. Um, so we can talk to them and talk them through uh, the type of planning that we can offer them. Again, it's relative to a client's um, circumstances and then what they want to achieve, really. So it's mm. bespoke to that client. Yeah, and uh, you know, like you say, things change all the time. So what was relevant five, ten years, maybe a year ago, suddenly yeah. people have children and it's, it's you know, hectic because they've just had kids, but it's, it's something yeah, they think, okay, God, that isn't in place. I really need to do that. So, yeah. Um, yeah, okay. So where's the best place people can find you and have that initial yeah. conversation? So just sure, to sort of be clear, is it, uh, they can have an, an initial chat uh, yeah. and then uh, you can go from there if people choose yeah, to. Yeah, they, they, they can um, either drop me an email um, or give us a call. Um, we'll book in the time for them to have uh, a chat. Uh, normally 40, 45 minutes is enough. Um, we would send them out a very, very short, it is short, fact find uh, for them to complete uh, so that we've got some idea of the assets that they have and their, their own situation, um, which sometimes, well, most of the time we will uncover a few other things as well by having a, a chat with them. But I hasten to add, you know, there's no fee for that. There's no obligation. It's simply really a chat. Uh, tell you what we do, uh, tell you what we can do for you. If you decide you want to go ahead, all well and good. If not, then, you know, as I say, that's my business risk. Okay. Well, hopefully people at home can, uh, you know, it comes across how approachable you are and friendly and you can, you know, explain things. So um, uh, that's, yeah, uh, people can go to that website and we'll put that in the show notes as well so people can find out there. That's really kind. Thank you. Thank You're you. welcome. And uh, I think that's all. Good place to wrap up there. So uh, we'll look forward to hopefully seeing you in the magazine soon and uh, seeing you probably on the pin circuit. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah, I'll be around the pin circuit. All starts in February. So, uh, yeah, do my first three talks then. Looking forward to it. In February. Great. All right, then, John. I will speak okay. to you soon. Take care. Thank you. Cheers, Bye. Michelle. Cheers. Bye-bye.